0: had to go through leaps and hurdles on the days of 9-11 right after and also to plan for the future and uh, that's what this uh, session is going to be about. Um, my name is Dave Vialek. I'm the special events broadcast uh, coordinator for the AES convention and uh, Myself and Howard Price put this together, and I'm going to now cede the floor to Howard Price, the contingency manager of ABC O&O-operated television stations. Howard.
1: David, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, The opening page of our emergency plan at Channel 7 says that it's never easy to contemplate catastrophe. And it is normal for most businesses to not want to do it. Uh, It's expensive and it's frightening. Uh, And so most people try to put it off. The people that you see sitting on the panel before you are, to a non-engineer such as myself, the the broadcast equivalent of shock and awe. Uh, These are magicians of the first order who took a mangled mess that was a multi-million dollar television and radio plant that lay in ruins in world trade, moved it to the middle of Manhattan and generally speaking within two weeks time had everybody who was off the air back on the air in a very small space with an insufficient amount of power and generating the kind of cooperation that is normally not found in our business. it is an art as much as it is a science and the people here deserve the appreciation not only of the technical community but of the millions and millions of people who sit at home and just want to know that when they flick the switch the box lights up and for that reason we owe every one of these gentlemen a huge debt of thanks I'd like to introduce the panel Uh, with whom you'll have a chance to speak uh, later on in the afternoon. You've met Dave already, systems engineering consultant, Dave Bialik. Uh, I'm Howard Price. Again, I'm the contingency planning coordinator for WABC-TV and uh, also nominally fill that role for the ABC-owned television stations from coast to coast. Uh, Sitting uh, to my right uh, is uh, Mark Kordash, who is the transmitter and RF supervisor for WPLJ Radio, WABC, WE... What are you now, W-E-P-N? <laughs> EPN, and uh, W-Q-E-W, which are the four ABC stations, the radio stations here in New York. Um, sitting next to uh, Mark is uh, Steve Schultes uh, from W-N-Y-C. Steve, you're the chief engineer, Dr- engineering manager? Okay. Joe Giordana is sitting next to uh, Steve. Uh, Joe is with uh, DSI. Uh, DSI is the... Um, telecom manager the manager of the rf master rf plant up at the empire state building sitting next to uh joe is the man who has climbed the empire state building more times than king kong and more times probably than any other living human being uh that's tom silliman from eri uh and sitting next to uh tom is um john lyons from dsi no i'm sorry durst my mistake my mistake, Durst. Um, the Durst organization manages four Times Square, which is uh, now the primary backup facility uh, for nearly all of the broadcasters in New York City. Uh, and uh, John's going to have some very interesting stories to tell us about that project. And um, sitting at the end there is uh, Herb Squire, uh, who is with DSI. There you go. I knew I, knew I had two DSIs here. Uh, I'm going to kind of set the scene for you here a little bit and take you through um, a little bit of history, what went on back on 9-11. And the first thing you're going to see is a little bit of a movie here that was produced by the FCC's Media Security and Reliability Council, which didn't exist prior to 9-11 and exists now, to make sure we're ready. Uh, just lived my world for 30 seconds Um, after 9-11 we um, realized just how vulnerable the New York broadcast infrastructure was and it touched us in a very personal way, these are the six men who came to work that day to fix transmitters and to do what they love to do each of them was killed in a heartbeat. The last words that you see there powering down were actually uttered by Bill Steckman in his last phone call to Channel 4 when none of these men had even known really what hit them because the rooms that were up on top of World Trade if I'm not mistaken didn't have any windows and all they knew was that the building rocked and the rooms were filling with smoke and fire and it was intensely hot And they knew they were in trouble and knew that they could not get out. And so they did what professionally they knew they had to do and they paid attention to trying to keep their stations on the air. Each of them is a hero of the first order. And for those of you who either are not from New York or don't really remember what the World Trade Site looks like, this is it. That's what they were fighting to protect. That's the mass that was on top of the North Tower. The bottom uh, right uh, array are the uh, STLS, the RPUs, and the microwave links, and the TV and FM antennas are up on the tall sticks that you see to your left. Very briefly, this is the timeline as it was officially recorded by FEMA. Uh, a few seconds after 8:46 in the morning, the first plane struck the north tower between floors 94 and 98. Fire, smoke and heat overwhelmed the broadcast facilities which were on the uppermost floors of Tower 1. Engineers started placing frantic phone calls to the TV and radio stations trying to power their plants down, not knowing really what had happened. 90254 a second plane strikes the south tower. 95904 the south tower collapses. 102831 even though the north tower had been struck first, it stayed up longer because of the angle of injury to the building. Uh, in the afternoon at 5 20, 33 7 World Trade Center, the city's emergency operations center collapses and is lost. And if, that, if the loss of the t- transmission infrastructure wasn't enough, the Verizon Switching Center, which is the hub for all of the telephone and data circuits that go through lower Manhattan, the building next to 7 World Trade is also badly damaged by debris which fell from 7 World Trade and from the other Uh, buildings in the complex. Damage of varying degrees is suspected in some 400 buildings surrounding the World Trade Center complex. And so we come to how the long struggle back begins. Nine television stations and four FM stations were knocked off the air. Uh, Remote pickup units, studio-to-transmitter links, two-way and paging systems were absolutely pulverized. Only WCBS-TV and WX-TV, the Univision O&O here in New York, maintained over-the-air service from plants they had in place at the Empire State Building. Univision has its primary transmission point at Empire. Cable saved the day for us. Um, nearly all of the TV stations feed their signals from their studios directly via fiber to most of the cable head ends. And so for nearly 76% of our audience, it was just a normal, if tragic, day. Uh, DBS was another lifeboat, a relatively new direct-to-home satellite service that accounts for another 5% of the New York market audience. And it's Major Armstrong to the rescue as uh, several of the o and uh, retreat to Alpine Tower. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit in the plant that exists up there. Alpine is just north of New York City, very storied tower uh, where FM radio was invented. WCBS, I love telling this story. It's what I call the mistake turned miracle. The legend of the lease. Years and years ago, after everybody had moved to world trade, the uh, folks at corporate said, you know what, these these backup sites, they're very expensive. So, you know what, Uh, we want you to cancel the lease. Cancel the lease at Empire, we don't need it anymore. Well, someone forgot to cancel the lease. And the lease is a self-renewing lease. Uh, so, WCBS wound up, I use the word euphemistically, saddled with an unexpected big bill for a site that they never envisioned would ever have to be used this way. In 1993, when the, bombing, the first bombing happened at the World Trade Center, uh, WCBS, uh, this mistake turned out to be a hero, uh, heroic. The engineer who made the mistake turned out to go from, hero to, uh, from goat to hero. Uh, Now firmly ensconced at Empire, CBS immediately ordered replacements for a 40-year-old Harris tube transmitter that was replaced with the latest uh, Harris Platinum and a Harris Sigma DTV, which was also added for digital service. Channel 5 and Channel 9 uh, swapped their digital space for analog temporarily at the Empire State Building, and WABC, WNBC, WNET, PIX, and WNJU, at least for a time, set up shop temporarily at Alpine Tower about 20-25 miles to the north and west of New York City. Uh, the PAC station, WPXN, moved first to a facility in East Orange, New Jersey, and uh, they also had an assist from a facility that they own, uh, one channel up in, uh, or actually uh, the uh, old channel uh, 68 facility in, uh, Amity, or 67, I'm sorry, uh, 68 in Amityville, Long Island. And then they moved to Alpine as well. Let's take a look at what I know best, which is what happened at my shop, WABC. We keep a database of all the cable MSOs uh, in our market and hot numbers where we can call the head-end operators and tell them what's gone on. Uh, We immediately put our signal up on satellite so that DBS and cable systems without a direct fiber link to the Channel 7 studios could continue to receive our signal. Uh, Harris, uh, which is our transmitter vendor, Uh, diverted uh, a 2-kilowatt and a 10-kilowatt transmitter that were headed for other Channel 7 stations elsewhere in the country uh, to us. Uh, Of course, with traffic disrupted in New York, the transmitters were delivered to the New Jersey home of our engineering manager. It went something like this. Honey, were you expecting transmitters in the driveway? That's basically the way it went. No, No joke. The station uh, went back on the air from Alpine within a week of attacks with vital assistance from our sister station, WPLJ. And when we get into the discussion of this, I'm going to let Mark uh, talk more about that. Uh, The amount, uh, the ballet uh, that was involved in doing this is is really quite extraordinary, and Mark really knows it from the inside out, so I'm going to let him talk about that later. Today, we, Channel 9, Channel 11, and Channel 13, uh, all share an antenna at the Empire State Building. We're operating now at about 10 kilowatts with 20 kilowatts of effective radiated power. It's well below our authorized power from World Trade. We will be upgrading the plant to 38 kilowatts or about 120 kilowatts ERP. Uh, And the power change, of course, is due to the lower antenna height at Empire and a little bit of increased gain. Here are some of the critical operating issues that all of the engineers in town had to deal with. Uh, Preserving the protected WTC contours for an expected return to a tall tower somewhere within 3.2 miles of the World Trade Center site. Original plans called for us to go to a super tower that was proposed first for Governor's Island, and then for Bayonne, and then for Jersey City, and then back to Bayonne. And then once the plans for what will become known as Freedom Tower were solidified, Um, the decision was made by the Metropolitan Television Association that everyone would go back to Freedom Tower, which will actually be a taller site than World Trade, and it will be built uh, approximately where World Trade was. Um, We had to worry about power and space constraints at the Empire State Building. Remember, this was a building that was built in 1931, and the TV and radio plants were added after that, and they were built for an age where you didn't have the kind of demand that we were about to place on this landmark building again. Uh, So there was a lot of of, uh, technological uh, uh, hocus-pocus that needed to be done in order to make all of this work. Uh, There were combiner issues, harmonizing dramatic new RF loads. The absence of emergency power in much of the Empire State Building. Uh, There are a few stations that have it, but most of them don't. And all of that now has to be added back because, after all, this is now a primary transmitter site uh, for most of us, and we've just got to stay on the air. There are microwave limitations. TV stations, which have been used to having this glorious site on the World Trade Center to use, now have to learn how to do live shots without the World Trade Center. Um, And the FCC gave us only temporary relief from digital transition deadlines, we still have to build out those digital plants. So all of these issues uh, were brought to bear as we tried to um, get ourselves back on the air. What are some of the lessons that we learned after we went through all of this. Well, first of all, the multifaceted impact of cascading failures. Uh, Losing so many systems all at the same time Uh, and having basically to rebuild it from scratch. Uh, This is the kind of thing that you want to anticipate when you do contingency planning. You have to think beyond that which your mind can realistically conjure. Uh, There are tower siting issues, regulators, real estate, and of course you all know the NIMBY syndrome. Who wants a huge tower, a 2,000-foot television or radio tower in their backyard. Now, me, I think towers are elegant. I think they're masterpieces. I really wouldn't mind it in my backyard. My wife might be of a different mind. But um, in a place like New York City where real estate is so scarce and you have that 3.2-mile window within which you can put a transmitter, um, you really don't have a whole lot of options. And the paradigm shift. The co-location of primaries and auxiliary systems. Those of you who work in radio and television and your plants go back to the dawn of black and white uh, and mono uh, probably never thought twice about putting your primary up on one level of the antenna and your secondary on another level of the the stick and you got your two boxes sitting in the same room right opposite each other. Um, A lot of people won't be doing that again. Uh, as new sites are built out. There'll still be backups for primaries in the same place, but then there'll be a backup for the backup. Uh, And this is, again, some of the the cost and engineering issues that came out after the disaster. Backups for backups for backups. Uh, Stations now understand that they are in the risk management business, and they have to start doing comprehensive and annual risk and readiness assessments. Contingency planning is not just a buzzword. It now has to be a budget line. Uh, And plans that are drawn up have to be tested and retested again. So, where, when, and how to begin? Well, the first thing that I would tell you to do is don't fear the challenge. It's something you have to do. And you apply the same good business process, strategic, tactical, philosophical assessments to this as you would to anything else that you do in your plant. You want to take an enterprise-wide approach. Why do I say that? Well, let's take a look at the clear channel cluster for a minute. Clear Channel, in its wisdom, was the first broadcaster to use four Times Square as a backup site and engineered it magnificently. It's a marvelous, marvelous plant. They took care of the transmitter side. When the blackout hit, several of their stations had no power at the studios. This is what I mean by taking an enterprise-wide approach. You don't think of segments of the operation. You think of the operation as a whole. Interestingly, one of the stations that was blacked out was a station that's known here as Light FM, Now, how would you like to be the image manager there? Blackout, light FM, no light. Something to think about. Um, And you have to remember all of your constituencies, both internal and external, audience and advertisers. Your, Your staff, the people who rely on you as your viewers, and your advertisers are all people you need to take care of while you're trying to deal with an emergency, and that all has to be in your plan. So what are the four pillars of preparedness? Well, first is prevention. Knowing your threats and their impacts. Mitigation, reducing the impact of any disaster which might occur in spite of your best planning. Response, coming up with scenario-specific plans of action that everybody knows cold without having to go to a manual. And recovery, what you do after the disaster has passed, your business resumption and normalization protocols. What are some things you can do now? Well, you want to start making disaster planning a philosophical, budgetary, and operational priority. You want to assess your risks and readiness enterprise-wide, and you want to do it on an annual basis, if not more frequently. Empower staff to make and implement decisions, and you want to remember human factors. You've got to take care of the building, and you've got to take care of your people. I cannot stress enough the nature of frequent assessment and thorough assessment. I was telling the story to some of the panelists before we uh, began uh, the seminar this afternoon about our situation at Channel 7 during the blackout. Our transmitter had emergency power. Three of our nine microwave sites had emergency power. We wouldn't have known because when we did remodeling in our building we moved the rooms and didn't move the circuits to the emergency generator. On paper we had emergency power. (laughs) <laughs> but in reality, some of the rooms that we needed to uh, power didn't, were not hooked up to the generator. So this is why you really have to be very, very thorough in how you do your tests. And by the way, if you're testing generators, you've got to do it under load, and you have to walk around the building uh, almost with a circuit tester and double-check to make sure that everything that you painted orange is actually hooked into the generator. Uh, you want to focus on service, not your revenue loss. During an emergency, your job is to calm and comfort the public. You can worry about the make goods later. Your job, federally, regulatorily, and and in terms of a moral imperative, is to be on the air to calm your community and inform them. And that's why... You always need to have a plan for, making, for comforting your audience and keeping your, making your clients whole. You're going to want to exercise your crisis plans with everybody on your staff at least twice a year. You want to vary the days and hours of your real-world simulations. You want to cross-train all employees and assume nothing. You don't know when something's going to happen. Managers, as a rule, don't work on the weekends. They don't work on legal holidays. And that could be when a novice staff or a less-trained staff is there holding in the palm of their hands the fate of your broadcast plant. Everyone needs to know everything. You want to back up all of your mission-critical files on and off-site. And you want to refine, harden uh, your internal and external communication systems. Here's the last word. Inaction is not an option. It's only a disaster if you don't plan for it. I want to thank you very much for your attention. And I'm going to turn it over... uh, I'm sorry... Right, we're going to have questions and answers after uh, we introduce you again to our panel and let them tell their first-hand stories of rebuilding New York's infrastructure. Um, I guess uh, I I want to throw it out generally uh, speaking. I'm going to to start with with Herb um, and with Joe. Can you tell us a little bit about your first instincts, your first responses in the minutes after... Uh, the disaster what, what did you know that you had to do
2: well the first thing was that I was in the shower and my wife said something a plane hit world trade and I said I better not go in the city and take down those traffic cameras from metro networks today had no idea the scope of the disaster it was just it's going to be a hell of a commute to get into the city today uh, then we thank God because we were supposed to have a crew on the South Tower that day working on an antenna for the police department. And those guys were up in Buffalo. After that, we went to the office and started regrouping. You know, we just started getting resources together and uh, working with all the clients and making sure that we had trucks and warehouse space and resources available to deal with rebuilding what we knew had to be rebuilt.
1: In terms of the Empire State Building, I'm sure it probably hit you
2: immediately that that was going to probably be everybody's new home. Well, what hit us first was it was going to be another target. That was the biggest issue, and we were quite apprehensive about that. Uh, The building stepped up real quick. They provided adequate security, but it was a scary time to be in that tall building knowing what went on. Uh, After, I would say, after about two or three hours... And we got a feel for what was going on. There was a level of comfort knowing that it probably nothing was going to happen now with jets flying over the city and the government really knowing what was going on from an airspace point of view. But it was pretty scary for two or three hours. And there was a lot of where are we going to put people, where are we going to get the power, where are the antenna is going to go. There was a lot of that discussion going on. Herb, tell me a
1: little bit about just how daunting a task that really is for folks who may not have a, an extensive RF
3: background in the room. Well, it's, it's daunting in the fact that on top of the fact that the Trade Center was lost, most of these facilities did not have backup or, or alternate sites to broadcast. So they were basically completely in the dark until such time that something whether it were a backup facility of some sort, something Rube Goldberg, thrown together you know, the chewing gum and bailing wire approach to get something on and then, okay, catch your breath for about 30 seconds and then go on to say, okay, now what's the next step? And typically it had to be a next step that had several steps before you could get to a new facility or even a major backup facility uh, just to, to uh, basically stay alive as a, as a broadcaster.
2: A lot of the first and second week were spent with um, planning that bubble gum and bailing wires, her put it approach. Uh, then we kicked into what do we do on a more of an interim basis until people can settle down and re- really resolve the final approach and the final solution. So uh, there was a lot of uh, eighteen and twenty hour days for the first week or so.
1: Steve, I want to. Uh Turn it over to you and ask a little bit from a first hand perspective uh, of, of your recounting of that day and, and, and what, how you planned out your response, how, how you got WNYC back on the air as quickly as you did.
4: Well, support was the biggest thing. Um, we, uh, we made, I have a great support staff, we, we made good contacts with DSI. And because uh, two words come to mind that we were striving for was uh, power and aperture. Um, power to run a transmitter and an aperture to broadcast from. Um, We'd been at World Trade since what, 1980, uh, early 80s, 83 or so, and uh, I had stepped foot in Empire maybe twice in my career at NYC since 87. So I was really dependent on um, support from people who knew the building, DSI, um, John Lyons, uh, uh, the AXQ staff, um, and we basically, we there were two things. One was um, looking at getting our FM back on the air. Uh, but equally important was getting, keeping our AM station on the air in New Jersey and the various STLs it took, keeping the paths going and improving the paths over the first few days to get a stable STL path so we didn't have to you know, travel to the transmitter site at all, got all uh, hours in the morning to reconnect a, an ISDN line or a POTS line or something.
1: Uh, and you used some interesting approaches. I remember that uh, NPR helped you out uh, a little bit. You actually satellited some stuff down to Washington for distribution back up to New
4: York. Yeah, we were, you'll see in the slides when we get to them that um, we were lucky that when we evacuated our building, because our studios were downtown, too, well, about six blocks from World Trade, um, When we had to evacuate pretty much immediately. And we were lucky that once we settled at the NPR New York Bureau up on 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue, uh, they had that T1 circuit to NPR Washington was still intact. I still don't understand how, but it it remained intact, and we used that as our lifeline to NPR Washington, who then uplinked it to um, uh, C-band satellite, and we could downlink it to um, uh, uh, WNYE, who donated their frequency uh, after the first day, and um, eventually to uh, our AM station.
1: You actually have a visual representation of all this, and I'm going to ask you to come and take us through that cycle now.
4: Get the computer over here.
1: Yeah. There you go. You're up. I'm sorry. Yeah.
4: Just one second. I'm to try to put this right here.
1: Musical computer. Having some technical difficulties.
3: This is only a test. Okay. Um,
5: are you done? I'm done. done. I'm going to move
3: it.
5: The slides
4: look bad, boy. As you can see, my slides aren't as sexy as Howard's, but... Bear with me. There, there's some content there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll launch into this. Uh, basically, I was, I was just going to walk you through um, what WNYC Radio did in the first uh, few days after 9-11, and then um, I'll conclude it with just some of the uh, milestones of getting um, uh, full-power facilities back on the air at our, um, at our sites. So, to start with, um, what we had housed at One World Trade Center, uh, room 11049, basically, as, as Howard mentioned, we had, you know, all our eggs in one basket. We had our, uh, our two uh, full-power transmitters there, our main and aux transmitters. We had a, an additional one-kilowatt backup transmitter, mainly because of the, uh, the TV, um, uh, DTV project. Uh, so we could broadcast overnight on a on a smaller uh, auxiliary antenna, uh, and we had our our WNYC AM uh, STL and TSLs uh, repeaters on top of the building. So um, this looked like this. Um, you can see the uh, the all eggs in one basket <laughs> uh, approach here, and you know we. Uh, we thought nothing of it. Uh, it was uh, we, had, we had multiple paths. We had re- redundancy, but we didn't have redundancy off of that building pretty much. Uh, the only thing we did have, and excuse me, I don't have a laser pointer, but uh, the bottom lines, you see the 15 kilohertz telco um, studio transmitter links. Uh, that was basically it for redundancy outside of the World Trade Center uh, uh, building. So you can see... Um, microwave shots to, uh, for the FM STL 23 gigahertz we had a 950 AM STL uh, which re- was repeated off the top of the building down to our AM transmitter site which is in Kearney, New Jersey we had the TSL path the transmitted a studio link return path from Kearney uh, repeated off of World Trade and, um, and that's it so uh, on the 11th, at approximately 8.50, uh, when the uh, tower was hit, um, both FM and AM went off the air, because our normal path is our, our microwave shot to, uh, to Kearney, and of course the FM just uh, ceased to exist. Uh, WNYC engineer George Edwards, who was on master control, um, he thought quickly enough to switch from the microwave to the uh, 15 kilohertz least circuit, the radio line, to Kearney. And he was able to quickly restore at least the AM station. And uh, that's a pretty bleak picture of what we had at about 9.30 AM on the 11th. The only thing we had were the 15K lines to uh, to Kearney, New Jersey. I'm leaving out uh, data paths and things like that. We had some dial-ups and some other leased circuits. But for the purposes of just staying on the air with uh, audio, this is what I'm showing. OK. Um, The first few hours of September 11th, uh, our studios are evacuated about 10 a.m. basically. Um, Prior to me leaving, um, don't let my wife hear this, I didn't call her, I called the NPR System Technical Center and told uh, told them that we were evacuating and that we're leaving a satellite, a specific satellite channel up on the air uh, unattended. So I wanted them to understand that this was. Uh, what was basically feeding the audience in New York City, so they wouldn't put tone up and things like that. Um, I did call my wife later. Um, so uh, we evacuated. Um, I attempted to bring a, a phone hybrid out to... Uh, uh, I wanted to get a hybrid out of the um, remote closet to bring it to the AM site, but uh, I was really pretty much forced to just get out of the building. Um, A few of us met. It was about 10.20 a.m. A A few of us met on the street, and um, I directed some of the editorial and news staff uh, to walk up to the NPR Bureau, and that I was still going to try to get out to Kearney, New Jersey, to try to set up a a POTS line feed. Um, But unbeknownst to me, one of our um, announcers, after being evacuated from our downtown studios, snuck back into the building. Uh, So by the time I got to to our van, which was just after the... uh, The South Tower fell. Uh, I get in the van, start it up, and I hear our announcer back on the air. Uh, That was kind of interesting. Um, But I continued to try to get uh, to Kearney, New Jersey. Of course, by this time, there was no way of getting off the island. Um, So uh, about 12.30 or so, um, uh, I turn around. Uh, try to get back to uh, the NPR New York Bureau to assist in the operations there. I get on the horn with uh, Rich Koziel, who is a contract engineer for our station and for WKCR at Columbia University. And um, we first confirmed that we're each okay, alive. Uh, We weren't there. And um, uh, lo and behold, I found that he had just gotten off the phone with Harris Broadcast and ordered a a set of uh, basically three low-power uh, rigs, like whole, whole equipment, um, three 1-kilowatt three transmitters from Harris, um, uh, processors, FM processors. They were going to swing by ERI, Tom Silliman's company in Indiana, to pick up three uh, uh, two-bay FM antennas, one for each station, and uh, they had a coordinated, uh, shipment of coax cable from uh, RF Systems in Connecticut. So uh, with that information, um, I uh, landed at the Bureau. Uh, We had a pretty good um, setup underway there. However, we were still operating from the downtown studios, from our announcer who managed to sneak back in the building. Um, Shortly after I get to the Bureau, uh, WQXR, I get a call from Rodney Belazare, chief engineer at uh, WQXR-FM, graciously offering us the use of their AUX site out in uh, West Orange, New Jersey. Um, Later, we found out that that would just not work due to the... uh, Uh, close frequency of another station there, and uh, we're just uh, unable to make it work. Um, And about 2.30 p.m., and this is rough, by the way. This is is sort of going by memory, but uh, so be it. Uh, But we get a call from NYEFM. This this is uh, when it used to be the Board of Education station. Uh, FM station. They're still with the uh, the city. Um, but we get a call from them offering uh, the use of their frequency at 91.5 to uh, simulcast WNYC programming to get back on the uh, at least the FM air. So things were going pretty well. Uh, we were still broadcasting from um, uh, Lower Manhattan, where our the new news announcer who came in at like four o'clock that morning was uh, still on the air, basically. Um, I believe we had pretty much set up our uh, emergency studios at the bureau, uh, and then at somewhere around I saw the FEMA slide or Howard slide said 5 p.m. I, uh, my memory says seven, but uh, World Trade Center seven fell, um, which took out the uh, the Verizon central office, and that basically uh, knocked out our uh, our 15k radio lines to to Jersey. So at that point, basically. Our studios were completely severed um, from uh, any transmitter site. Um, uh, At that point, since I could never get out to New Jersey before, uh, we called um, our contract engineer, Richard Koziel, who who lives in New Jersey, so he didn't have any bridges and tunnels to worry about. Um, He got to the the transmitter site, I think around midnight or so. So basically we were off the air from somewhere around 7 p.m. to about midnight um, 9 o'clock n- p.m.? Okay, thanks. Um, so, from 9 to midnight or so, we were off the air. Uh, Richard showed up at the uh, transmitter site. Um, and since we didn't have any codec out there, again, you know, uh, pretty much an oversight here. You know, when would we have to dial up our transmitter site with a phone? Um, uh, he basically took a, uh, a desk set and uh, some alligator clips and plugged it into the audio input of the transmitter. So now we have this, uh, the New York Bureau, upper left, POTS line connection to uh, the AM transmitter. And uh, this is what it looked like. You can see the, uh, the desk set uh, with the cable going to the audio input of our transmitter. You should have heard that. Okay, um, the next day, the 12th, uh, we continued to... Obviously, this uh, this POTS hookup was not going to be a, a permanent solution. So we, um, we located a couple of Comrex hotlines, uh, uh, one via Radio Vision Christiana in New Jersey. It was still important to keep this New Jersey-Manhattan thing going because it was hard to get over the river. Uh, so Peter Polanco, chief at uh, Radio Vision, loaned us a hotline. He actually drove to the site. Um, he didn't have any keys with him, um, so he broke in through our window and uh, hooked up our hotline he used to work for me so I trusted him on that <laughs> um, uh, Rodney Bell is there came through again um, with a Comrex hotline from uh, QXR studios in, in Manhattan and uh, we got it to the bureau uh, we were able to set up the Comrex hotline connection about 2 o'clock p.m. on the 12th that, uh, that was a big uh, relief um, uh, for the, uh, to uh, get the uh, audio sounding better um, also on the morning of the 12th, Mike Starling, VP of Engineering at NPR Washington, called uh, to basically said, tell me what to do. I'll do anything. Um, I took him up on it, and uh, they put a KU band um, up, uplink downlink dish on a truck and uh, sent it to us so we could uh, hopefully establish a KU downlink at the AM site. Again, just, we, we just kept looking at um, improving our STLs and getting some backup. Um, WNYE-FM I'm not sure when this happened but sometime I think on the 12th um, we uh, uh, were able to uh, get on the FM back on the FM air with WNYE uh, via that um, T1 circuit I mentioned from the Bureau uh, feeding NPR Washington who then turned it around uplinked at C-band uh, and downlinked at, at uh, NYE who's also a, a NPR member station so you can see the uh, the chain grows here a little bit there's the T1 to Washington, uh, C-band up and down link to NYE. And um, this is 9 a.m. You see, still see a dial-up connection to Kearney. And here's the Comrex hotline by about 2 p.m. So this is where we were about midday on, uh, on the 12th. I told you the slides weren't as sexy as Howard's. <laughs> um, on the 13th, um, to the best of my memory, the, uh, the KU band uh, portal, portable satellite dish arrived at the transmitter. That became the main link to the AM site, again via that T1 link from the New York Bureau. We're still in this little 8x10 office with emergency, uh, you know, uh, Mackie mixer and a couple microphones. But feeding that T1 to Washington, who then uplinked it, C band and KU band. Um, C band to NYE and KU band to uh, the Kearney station. Uh, about the time of the 13th, WKCR-FM from Columbia University also came through. I mean, the, the list of people who just uh, gave us support is overwhelming. Uh, they came through, offered the uh, use of their uh, studios at Columbia University, which were about 90% completed, a brand-new studios, uh, Harris installation up there. And um, we took them up on it because one thing we wanted to do, offer back to the public, is a, uh, a call-in show. And we didn't, have, we didn't have any access to a hunt group. Uh, anything beyond just one or two POTS lines. We needed a hunt group, and they had it. Um, James Williamson and Ed Haber from NYC, um, I sent them up there to kind of reconnoiter the situation, uh, and they began basically working um, to finish that installation and sort of make it idiosyncratic for our use um, over the next few days. Uh, here's the, this shows the KU um, uh, transmission to the AM site. You know, the Comrex hotline became uh, a backup. Um, I should mention, this: this the uh, KU link only lasted about a day and a half uh, due to uh, inclement weather that came through on the 14th. Um, it attenuated the signal into New York, and we started getting dropouts, so we went back to the Comrex. But uh, it was a nice try. Okay, uh, September 14th. This is, what, Friday, I guess. Um, the... Uh, the emergency packages, uh, transmitter packages from Harris arrive. Um, ours and I think WPAT FMs went to uh, DSI's warehouse in New Jersey. Um, the, the FEMA escorts began to be arranged to Empire. The uh, KU dish went out. We went back to the uh, Comrex. Uh, we could, by the way, we could also use, uh, uh, we had an FM receiver at the transmitter site, so we could, at the AM site, so we could select that to NYE, and we could get a pretty good um, FM feed to simulcast onto the AM at that point, too. It was chief engineer at AXQ, Clear Channel. Um, he came to our rescue and, and offered us everything, ISDN lines, space, um, tie lines, uh, up to Empire, and uh, we took him up on it. Um, and the same, about the same time I got on the Horn of Verizon, now that I had a room to shoot for, uh, I give them an address. I, gave, I uh, ordered some ISDN lines and a T1 circuit to Empire. It took about two months to get in. Um, uh, we also, um, DSI and myself, uh, we, had, we had a plan to go uh, into Empire with the one kilowatt. And unfortunately, that fell through due to just way, the different ways that people had been using antennas. So we went to a backup plan, which worked out probably the best, which was using the Alford uh, antenna, which is the uh, the original Master FM antenna from 1965. Okay, um, September 16th, this is Sunday. We're basically back on air now with that, uh, with that scenario proposed by DSI. Um, We had the one kilowatt uh, transmitter in the combiner room at Empire uh, basically plugged into um, the uh, the Alfred antenna. I should have included a picture of the adapter that we had to build. It was about a foot and a half long, basically from N to uh, um, 8-inch RF to get to the uh, RF patch bay there. Pretty amazing. Um, AXQ again uh, donates the space, ISDN lines, tie lines uh, uh, for our use of our STL equipment. So here we are on Sunday. Um, again, from the New York Bureau on the upper left, uh, NPR Washington, um, uh, ISDN to uh, Empire. We used NYE as a backup uh, ISDN path to Empire. We, we had trouble with the ISDN line. This is probably one of the worst nightmares of the whole time. and I had to call John Lyons a couple times at 5 in the morning to... The ISDN dropped, and we couldn't reconnect it from a a remote source, so he had to trudge into his transmitter room at AXQ and dial it out for us. Um, You see the FM receiver path on the right going to the uh, AM transmitter. Once we got on the air at Empire, uh, even with the uh, the one-kilowatt transmitter, uh, we basically used the FM receiver at uh, Kearney, New Jersey, at the AM site, as the main link. Uh, It it was pretty stable enough. Um, What else? Okay, that's about it. Um, September eighteenth. Uh, this is the following Tuesday, uh, basically a week a week away. Um, James and Ed had finished the work at uh, WKCR, and we moved in there for our basically our four hours of live talk during the day. And I think we had a special live talk show at night. Is that right, Ed? Yeah, like four or five nights. In a row. Yeah. Okay. Um, about four or five nights, uh, we had a live talk show. Was it national? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and that's, that was up at Columbia. We ISDN that to the Bureau. Um, so there's Columbia Studios, uh, WKCR in the upper left. ISDN it to the Bureau, continued use of the T1, and everything else is p- pretty much the same here. Okay, um, and this is very rough. Um, somewhere around the 30th, basically the end of the month, uh, we were able to go down back downtown to our studios and uh, get back on the air from there. Surprisingly, we had a f- fair amount of telco um, infrastructure still standing. Um, we had our uh, T1 out to our C-band uplink site, uh, which was in Brooklyn. That was still good. I don't think we ever lost that. Um, that Ku dish that, that we had for a day and a half out of the AM site as a downlink, uh, we moved that to the roof of the municipal building uh, with NPR's help again, and we use that as a backup uplink site in case our T1 went out uh, to to Brooklyn, uh, and we use that for uh, STL transmissions. And you know, these are sort of original slides of um, that I prepared uh, at, at, on these dates. This first one is uh, October 7th, 01. Um, I prepared these for the staff because things were changing fairly regularly and we had to keep uh, everybody up to date. Uh, NYC uh, employs a fair amount of engineers, uh, 12 to 14, who rotate through master control and different things. And we wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page for backups and primary links. Um, So this is one link. Um, Here we had, I think, installed our own ISDN line to, uh, to John's room. So we could hang up his and stop the charges. Um, uh, October 24th we uh, remember that 950 megahertz STL we had to um, to Kearney, New Jersey we finally reestablished that just working through the Fresnel zones of it we didn't have line of sight to New Jersey but we kind of pointed it, pointed each dish toward each other and it worked so we bolted it down and left it and we were able to get a good at least analog microwave uh, path to the AM site um, that that uh, uh, that kept us on the air, and actually, to this day, we're still using that as our main uh, STL until we get um, the uh, the final 950 path um, installed at Four Times Square, which should be uh, very soon. Uh, AM lease circuits began to be reappeared. Uh, one of our one of our 15k radio lines came back at um, uh, to Kearney. Uh, Talking to Verizon um, was—it must have been hellish there. Uh, I think the main problem at the West Street central office was the uh, diesel fuel had basically flooded um, part of the uh, Verizon central office, um, and it was uh, just—you know—just a a mess of uh, diesel fuel (laughs) and patch base. Terrible. Uh, This just shows our um, our, on the bottom the very. Bottom thing on the page is our 950STL replaced to uh, to Kearney, New Jersey. Still using the C-band satellite to NYE, we stayed on the air. We basically had th- three frequencies at this point, AM820, the 939FM, and 915NYE simulcast. Um, this just uh, indicates another ISDN line installed. Um, uh, December 3rd, we get our T1 circuit in from Verizon to Empire. So uh, for the first time since um, September 16th, we could actually hang up the ISDN call. So about, almost a two-month uh, ISDN call. And this just shows the, uh, the T1 circuit in the middle going to uh, Empire. Okay, now I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. This sort of ends the kind of microcosmic uh, improvements t- uh, immediately after 9-11. Just a couple milestones here, and I'll wrap up. Uh, April 1st, 2002, four times square, uh, which, is, um, which is designed as our AUX uh, transmitter site. We built that first just because, well, there, were, there was power there. There wasn't power at Empire. Um, we could get a, a lease quickly there, and a lot of logistics were a lot easier to do at Times Square than Empire, so we built that first. Uh, but it was designed to be an AUX site but that went on the air first. So that was our restoration of full power. Uh, DSI RF systems were the uh, general contractor for that. And this is the beginnings of... Um, what I or somebody call the self-healing loop uh, STL design uh, which basically um, multiple points that if one point fails uh, there's enough automation in the, in the path that other uh, backups take place I'll show you that here a little bit um, this shows uh, current configuration as of uh, May 2002 we still had um, uh, Empires in Red because that's still a backup site the, we only had the one kilowatt there but Times Square in green um, is the, uh, the full-power uh, transmitter. And the, uh, the microwave shot on the left um, is 5.8 gigahertz spread spectrum link backed up with a physical T1. Um, you can, now you can see, you know, hindsight 2020, you can start seeing little uh, blips of telco activity there. We, we've now installed uh, ISDN backup at each site. We've now installed POTS backup at each site different ways of getting in there, um, and uh, physical T1 to Empire. Uh, November 26, 2002, um, just about a year ago, Empire uh, State Building, the main transmitter site, goes on the air. Uh, RJ Construction was the GC for that. Uh, and the self-healing loop STL design is in place, basically three points, the studio down in the bottom, the main, which is now Empire, and the backup site uh, at Times Square. And if you can, if you see the two microwave links shooting up from below to each site—Times Square on the left, Empire on the right—the uh, what makes it a loop is the physical T1 connection in the middle. Um, I think I called it the Uptown Connect between the two sites. Um, I originally designed it to have another spread spectrum link in there. Um, that, that has not come to fruition yet just due to logistics. I don't have a northerly view from Empire, so I can't see Times Square. Um, but that could be worked out sometime in the future. But at least there is a T1 connectivity um, from one point to the other. If I lose my microwave link to uh, Empire, I, it gets backed up with a physical T1. If the whole frame goes down at Empire, the... Uh, the, uh, the loop from the left to Times Square feeds over to Empire and an auto switch uh, transfers audio to that path. And uh, uh, that is it. Thank you.
1: you. see what I mean about magic? Uh, and you're looking at a time frame of a, just about a year. Uh, that all of that was done and there's work going on even as we speak now. Um, I, want to make, I, I want to make sure that we um, hear about the four Times Square site because uh, it, it truly is magnificent and, and John and has got some interesting stories to tell. But I want to bring Tom in on the discussion. I want to get Mark in on the discussion here because um, I mentioned a little while ago the ballet that needed to be done on top of the Empire State Building, and, and we and WPLJ and Tom's people were certainly part of all that. And, uh, uh, Mark, I want to start with you first and, and talk a little bit of, of, about what happened with us. Um, there was really no room for us initially on the Empire State Building. I mean, it was full up. And, um, and, and we called our friends down at radio and, and basically begged you. I mean, we, we needed help. Tell us some of what you had to do to, to make it work for us.
6: Well, it involved, um, you know, a bit of uh, both physical floor space um, uh, shuffling as well as, uh, you know, electrical and antenna. Um, You know, it it all began, uh, it's interesting, um, we were currently, before the disaster uh, took place, we were uh, talking with the Alpine Tower uh, company in uh, obtaining a lease at that site and having that as our uh, main full power um uh backup um on 911 at 10 a.m. uh we did come to an agreement with them and uh, expeditiously uh began construction of our uh backup facility at that point we were able to um, uh you know, offer our uh, our resources to uh WABC TV and uh you know see what we could do to uh you know uh, make something work. Um, it uh again was you know step at a time uh get you know getting uh something going so we have flexibility to switch uh you know uh facility wise to another um area well we uh did demolition and uh, modifications to our uh our space um, you know uh power supply uh you know load load panels and uh antenna apertures um, at that point uh we um were uh, yeah, you know kind of with the... Joe and Company. Uh, looking, at, I remember a comment of, "Okay, where do we put the couch? You know, are we going to put it up against the back of the wall, or are we going to, you know, have it uh, in the middle of the room?" So, you know, it was uh, there. You know, there was some uh, some interesting, you know, simple challenges as well as uh, you know, complex. Um, we, uh, been, you know, in a nutshell, we uh, managed to condense our four racks of STL. Um, Remote control, audio processing, monitoring into one rack, uh, with, with a few things stacked up on top as well. So <laughs> it uh, was compact but functional, and that uh, allowed uh, WABC's transmitter to uh, to be placed in the room where our uh, equipment racks were, and then we were able to add a few more on the other side. I apologize that you know, we didn't uh, we have had slides to to show this, but. Um uh, it, it, with the power uh, situation, we had to uh, disconnect our standby transmitter at the Empire site to allow for the WABC uh, transmitter to to operate until we could get a, another riser uh, brought in and a separate service. Um, that have, uh, eventually prevailed into um, uh, moving or sacrificing our uh, antenna for uh, the uh, WABC and eventually uh, WPIX, WWOR, and uh, WNET to um, uh, combine and you know and become a uh, you know a, a group on that uh, aperture. Um, we uh, worked with WQHT into um, sharing their antenna and building a small combiner system just for the two of us to. Uh, you know work from that uh facility and um so it's still uh you know that what i just uh described happened you know probably in the month month and a half after uh after the the disaster and uh it's still uh operating that way today excuse me today mark uh talks about moving things around moving business is a
1: good business to be in at the Empire State Building these days and with that I can think of no better introduction uh, than to uh, uh, Joe and and Herb uh, who have a presentation of their own to talk a little bit about what's been going on at the Empire State Building and actually visualize for
2: you just how complex a job this was so I'll turn it over to you guys Well basically when Mark said that uh, we had to move things around we had and orchestrate a uh, basically a ballet. We had, at that point, 13 stations, 15 stations, because we had put you guys on the air. Uh, WPAT was on the air with one kilowatt uh, into the uh, combination of the Master FM system and the Alfred antenna. We had to bring Tom in to take down the old WQ, uh, PLJ antenna and replace it with the new dielectric panel. And all this had to happen under the RFR specifications we had to shut everyone down. We had to move everybody to the Alfred antenna. I forgot what we did with you when we went to the Alfred during those periods.
4: Uh, there, were, there were only a couple. I yeah. didn't think they were overnight. I, yeah. just, I just went off the air. Right.
3: There were a couple of nights, depending on where in the uh, tower work, that right. they were, even with a, only a kilowatt into the ERI, it was not an RFR condition.
2: So it's rather ironic we took 15 or 14 stations, switched them to the backup Alfred antenna, which was much lower on the tower. It's around the uh, 104th floor, Second floor, 102nd floor, 102nd floor. Uh, observation deck, the old 102nd floor observation deck. I don't think it's been open since 9-11, has it? No. no. Um, and we put uh, WNYC into the main antenna, which was above where Tom's crew was working. In addition to this, at the same time, we're pulling in new power risers. We had to take out a WPLJ standby transmitter. We had to bring in the new Harris transmitter, And on top of that, build the new WABC support racks over in our warehouse in New Jersey so they could be brought in as one unit. So there was a lot of concurrent work going on. Um, It got sometimes a little bit difficult. Uh, Sometimes it got a little bit iffy. We had to replace some they? 50 to 75-ohm transformers, or we had to check them. And the old WABC line, WPLJ had used the six-inch line that WABC had used back when they were originally at the Empire State Building. Um, There were some transformers put in to go from 75-ohm to 50-ohm, and they had to be changed. They wouldn't work for Channel 7 to reutilize that line. Unfortunately, one of those transformers was inside. How big is that duct?
3: It's several feet by several feet. It's a a huge ventilating shaft for the building, which could not be turned off. So we are literally working
2: in a shaft that goes down two or three floors to a rotating fan on some 2x12s that we sort of, like, put diagonally in the ductwork with goggles on. And all this time I have Bill Beam from Channel 7 going, You're going to get me on in time for sweeps, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was pretty much bill go away <laughs> you will be on time for sweeps which he was uh it was it was a, it was a really really complicated ballet as i said uh, we had multifacets going on simultaneously uh the fms were on the air which was good we had crews manning those shutdowns we had crews taking care of the room, and then we had liaisons with Tom's guy, uh, team working on the tower. And I think we got this done in, how long did it take us, Mark, about a month? You were on for sweeps, and we started well after 9-11. Yeah, Yeah, probably the month of October. So there was a lot of, like I said, 18, 20-hour days in that month. But I can turn it over to Tom, because, I mean, then really it ties into what you guys were doing on the tower. Yeah. (laughs) If that's okay. Be my guest. You want us to so just switch up, up. over okay. Yeah, you have the pictures, so. You have lots of pictures. I have no the, idea. The fun thing was trying to get all these people, the FMs, the TVs, uh, combined into the limited physical space we had. The combiner room at that point was, ext- I think, Tom, you have some pictures of the combiner room, right? It was extremely packed. Yes, still is. It's even more so. Technical difficulties again.
0: Right there. Right. Middle Middle left. Left. Okay. <laughs> now are you sending <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Are you sending Did you... Did you... No. I three No. Um, you have seven to
6: me. Okay. Okay. Uh, sure. Monitor.
3: No. I might also add, at, at, while we're waiting for the computer to uh, be connected, uh, that at the same time we were connecting channel 7 and got channel 7 on the air, we were also tying in channel 11, the PIX, to the, to the, that same antenna, having to take channel 7 off the air in order to put a two-channel combining system next to the air shaft in the shaftway, uh, and run transmission line from the 81st floor up through uh, to the 85th, and uh, it was one of these, we had a very limited amount of time in which to uh, shut off channel 7, go to uh, their backup site at Alpine, and tie in channel 11. We had to make sure that, number one, the uh, the filter worked properly, as well as the, the, these 75-ohm to 50-ohm transformers make sure that they would pass properly channel 11's part of the spectrum, uh, which it did. And uh, the amusing thing is, this was uh, one of these. This was a very, very long day that started early in the morning, and uh, we got to WPIX on the air from the 81st floor uh, transmitter room at about 2:40 a.m. And the best part about this, after all this work and you know, and getting it on and seeing the transmitter turn on, it was interesting that the video that came up on the air with after all this work was Jerry Springer.
2: <laughs> it sort of put everything in
3: perspective it put everything in the proper perspective all right i think we're ready to go here
5: um before i start i just want to mention that um, on 9-11 i was in my office and i was mostly on the phone um, everybody in the office in indiana starts at 7:30, which is 8:30 your time so as soon as we got in uh, somebody was calling up and saying geez you guys ought to turn on a tv uh, uh, some kind of plane is hit this the, the trade center and everybody wanted to know if I was in New York which I wasn't and then uh, so we all watched the events in the Midwest on TV and then um, right away it was you know people forget how amazing it was that no airplanes flew for five or six days I mean all those people had got flown to Iceland and just sort of had a little party um and those poor people that were on those five planes was it that's just awful um the first day that we could fly, I flew to Chicago to go meet with Andrew and talk to them about some Univision products. And then Ed Carter and I caught a plane to New York. And both of us, being sort of ironworker type of guys, we were there was only about eight people on the plane, and the and the people in the gate area walked up and said, uh, "You guys want to fly in first class?" He said, "Sure." He said, "You guys sit up front." I mean, it was a very strange time, and uh, we we couldn't get into New York, so we flew into Newark and took the the bus. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, the the smell and the and the ash when we when we got out of the Penn Station. I mean, it was just incredible. It was like a war zone. And, and as long as I live, I'll never forget that. Um, and then we immediately actually went to work on the Viacom building. Which I've included some slides on, um, John Lyons and I put this together for you. It's a visual thing, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, before 911 I went back pretty far. I don't know if anybody ever walks down Fifth Avenue on four, uh, next to the library, but there's this wonderful plaque about the original horse and carriage days of New York City. Sad to throw that in there. And, um, when Ed and I came in, the first thing we did was go into the Vicon building. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a CBS bat wing there now. And um, we went ahead and actually put up a pole extension in the center of the Vicon building and a tower and a bat wing so that Kevin Coleman from CBS could hook up an aux to his aux to have backup uh, for the Empire State Building. Also, we rebuilt and replaced the FM that CBS had over there so that uh, the two stations now could operate as an aux to Empire as well. And uh, the one thing that Joe didn't mention that that did occur also was RFR measurements. Um, We were involved not only working on the Empire, but we climbed through and certify all the climb spaces on the Empire and came up with a new climb plan for every change so that we could maintain RF safety. Uh, <laughs> moving now to the Empire. The uh, real quick view of the Empire. Beacon, Channel 68, Channel 41, FM master, then what used to be two RCA FMs, which is now one RCA FM, and the single ten-foot um, channel seven, nine, eleven, thirteen antenna. Then the MCI antenna. Then below is channel twenty-five, channel fifty-three, six. 56, CBS's DTV and Channel 2 and the Triplex and the Alford is right down there somewhere um, after 9-11 there was quite a few changes Bill Marish's TV is right up here we built the brackets for that in conjunction with Mike Cristados and Bob Jarosa. And they put it in. You notice now on all of the parapets above the observation level there are TVs for four, five, I think, and seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen. And then as we speak, uh, Mike Cristados, using uh, Bob DeRosa, is uh, putting in the, uh, the next TVs system that's going on the E floors. Um, The tower on the Empire, before the change, um, on the left, what was 68 at the top will now eventually be Channel 4-5 in the next year. Channel 41 actually has a Channel 41 and 40 dual uh, side mounted tracer in the building. It's been in storage for over a year. Their plan now is to have 68 operational at the top of the four times square building and to have uh, a backup for that in that same aperture as 4041 uh, they're going to put that in a channel 53 which is their DTV for 68 on the south east corner of the 30 inch square tower that the channel 4041 is mounted on the short 4041 is on the north west corner the FM master will be left alone in its 20-foot aperture. There was discussion of changing the two-bay FM master to a three-bay FM master that had short space to reduce the RFR levels on the observation deck, but I believe that's been scrapped. WQHC will be replaced by a new single-level uh, 10-foot-tall broadband FM for uh, multiplex use. Um, Moving down, the TV 791113 will still have its aperture that it graciously got given to by uh, Mark. <laughs> it said, but, it, but then the CBS antenna, was, which is no longer in use now, will be removed and then the 791113 7, antenna will expand down into that space with an additional 10 foot of aperture. Then, uh, the FM triplex will be replaced. Uh, the plan is to make it a new little, a replaced higher power, multiple use antenna, and of course the channel two area will remain the same. Um, the first thing that Joe did correctly was that he put a little tiny three pole filter into the broad port of the FM master system to get the the first orphan on the air, and uh, the, the it, it did its job. Um, the problem with the, with the three-pole filter, of course, is it l- eliminates the broad port. And then later, this was modified to to get the broad port back. Um, when we designed the FM master system, it was designed for 15 station maximum usage. It was built uh, with 11 initial users in 19- and installed in '93. Inactivated in early 94 so installed in 92 finished in 93 and then turned on in the winter of 93 94 but um when we designed it the uh the panels just for symmetry had 16 holes so we actually built it out for 16 stations which is kind of convenient because that's what joe's got on there now <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, um the the power level of that system Uh, was was really limited by emergency use, which has never occurred. The patch panel, which which has exceeded its duty cycle a thousand times over and done a miraculous job, I think, is is now getting a rest because uh, there's an automated switch in it. The space in the room has been totally consumed by filters that have been Just crammed in any little spot. It's a miraculous thing. And then um, as far as the building goes, uh, we got involved actually through the MTVA, the TV group, to look at the Empire State Building structurally. And um, we did thorough inspections and reviews, and we studied it under the F standard. And we came up with the fact that the tower was 48% overstressed without adding anything to it. And, of course, everybody just threw a terrible, screaming panic. And then uh, we got uh, we, our report was submitted, is, uh, and then it was reviewed by um, LZA, which the building hired. And uh, LZA came back, and they got exactly the same answer, but they also studied the building. And It turned out that the E floors, which are these floors, I guess they're called the E-Floors because of electrical equipment and the originally used for the Alfred filter. And those floors were equally overstressed. That uh, reinforcement project, I understand, has been completed in the E-Floors and will com- be completed in the tower by the end of next week. Um, I stole this from Chris Blackman, but, but it's kind of a comprehensive slide of, of the strengthening of the of the tower, but uh, it's amazing because there's incredible amounts of steel up here and in here as well. Um, the latest project I've been working on is, of course, John Lyons' project with the Durst Corporation, which is Four Times Square. I'm very pleased to have had a very active summer working on it. And I've really enjoyed working with John. Uh, I just can't tell you. I, I've never worked on a project this big that's gone this fast. I need a vacation. Um, if you look at this, this is the uh, flag right here at the topping out, which we put up. ERI did the steel design and the construction supervision and the ginpole Pick plan and the pole Pick supervision and the gin ball pick brackets it's, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to get something like this built But at the top is a, is a Univision channel 68 which was uh, an uh, Andrew product and then two um, 8 sided uh, uh, UHF antennas for broadband one one being an Omni and the other being a uh, DA and the high band V791113 7, antenna is up next and then there's then it's followed by an FM and there is space for future channel 4-5 and a future channel 2 which have not been uh, planned at this time Um, the work went on through all kinds of inclement weather Uh, John's work actually started in the snow which you'll see later but fortunately mine was in the summer the gin pole we used was a 30-inch pole and in this case, you can kind of see that when we were working up top, the was, building was gone. The steel for the project, uh, any, any of the steel that was over six and a half inches had to be preheated. And uh, what we do here is we preheat the steel before the well to avoid, to avoid uh, cracking, and then we use a melt stick, it's just sort of a neat process. I had to throw that picture on. All of the uh, tower and every section was actually assembled at the factory per our contract with Durst. You can see here that we've assembled the finished inner members to the not galvanized leg steel. That way, if there's a problem, we could fix it before the legs went out. Um, When it was shipped, we would actually ship all the inner members bolted together. Because our contract specified that it had to be shipped as as assembled as possible, which it was uh, to further uh, expedite the project and limit expense to durst, um, we worked out a laydown yard, and actually, if we couldn 't ship things assembled, we would ship, uh, ship the parts in and then assemble them at the laydown yard, for example, this section is an eight foot Uh, steel frame section which wouldn't go on a standard truck because the leg flanges are 23 inches however we could ship them in with a special permit from Queens we we looked at uh, yards in New Jersey but the problem with getting from New Jersey to New York is that you have to be at the bridge before uh, 10 o'clock at night and then you can't drive into the city until after midnight and then you have to be in it so you have to come in at midnight whereas in Queens you can travel anytime and get into the city so we could have the truck leave at 5 and be waiting at 7 pole pick plan was all done using the new standard which will be released hopefully this year um, this new standard is pretty incredible I was showing Mark earlier before we started that. And I actually carry the program with me in Math Lab, MathCAD, where I can actually take my 30-inch pole, uh, define the number of parts in the load line, specify the weight, the tag angle, and uh, the overage on the the, um, pole above the top pendant. And then the computer program will give me my basket choker loads, my pendant loads, my deflection. So when we're up there riding the loads, we can always look up and see. If you see this massive 30-inch square thing leaning over about 8 inches, it does give you a wheezy feeling. But if you know it's supposed to lean over 8 inches, it at least makes it a little better. I have the advantage of knowing what the safety factor is, so it makes me sleep a little easier. There's an example of one of the picks. Um, You'll notice here, this is the... First tape in the tower. I think the tower, the bottom tower is 10 and the next is 8. Is it 10 or 12, John? 12. 12, 12 and then 8. And you notice the next section of 8 going up, that section probably weighs close to uh, 22,000 pounds. And you can see that pole is pretty straight, but if you look up the pole, you can see it lean over about four and a half inches. Um, on the sections, because the building was too close to tag, we had to man-tag it, which meant that every section that went up, we would typically ride it, which is stretching the rules, but it had to be done. Um, this is kind of what it looks like up there when we were riding around. But you can sort of look down the pole, and you can kind of see it sort of folding over a little bit there. You're all welcome to come up. <laughs> this, this is part of my crew That's Ed Carter Who uh, I've worked with since 1990 And a personal good friend of mine A wonderful guy to work with This is uh, this was the first big heavy UHF pick That section weighed 28,000 As you can see here It's, it's hanging a little ugly But uh, it went up pretty well really when we rode this up was really kind of humorous one of the guys jumped on a bad spot and ended up hanging and then we couldn't get him off till we were done and he kept saying well well can't you get me off of here <laughs> so i was on the other side and i said no so he had to just, just hang there for about an hour and uh what what i did when we took this up was i rode on these pegs here which were over there then so we could keep it out of the tower but it's it was pretty hard to get up Kind of an example of uh, the handoff. One of the problems with the 4 Times square building was that um, you couldn't reach the roof with with a gin pole. So we had to take everything we put up and pick it up with a derrick from the street, bring it up to the roof, and then swing it over. And then we had to hand it live to the gin pole. So you can see this derrick boom hanging here, and you can see our gin pole rigging here. So we'd have to transfer that so when we designed the picking lugs for these I had them designed with a uh, double picking hole so that we could send them up with two shackles And then if you hand this off wrong, you'll topple that derrick So it's kind of a critical thing. It's pretty fun to do This is the uh, the results of stacking the first one And you can kind of look down at the flange that uh, is coming up. That's the, the basically had a nice little place to stand here so that when we brought the next section up and rocked it around. But you can see it going up there. Swing it around and then slab it with uh, ch- with uh, sleever bars. This is the, uh, when, when we uh, put up the tracer, Um, They got the honor flag from the World Trade Center and let us take it up with us. It's kind of a local 40 and actually national ironworker tradition. At Christmas, you send up a Christmas tree and otherwise you send up a flag. With that, I'd like to hand it over to John, who's uh, been much more involved with this than I am. Thank you.
7: Before we get into what's going on at Times Square and what's been going on, um, Joe had another instance where he had a delivery at the Trade Center uh, in 1993. Uh, He was supposed to have Channel 11's transmitter delivered the day of the first bombing. And fortunately, they had a meeting, and the transmitter couldn't be delivered that day, or the crew would have been in the loading dock where the bomb went off. So there's been a couple of close ones.
2: The years that they told us that would never happen
7: again. Right. The broadcasters back then, Joe had put together a plan, <clears throat> which I think, still think I have a copy of, yeah. uh, an emergency plan for broadcasting after that. And uh, <clears throat> within six months, all the broadcasters said, yeah, it'll never happen again. We don't need this plan. Well, unfortunately, eight years later, the plan was definitely needed. Um, right after 9-11 and during that time, I was, I was heavily involved in the building. Uh, I was working for Clear Channel at the time. I was chairman of the Master FM group uh, for the second time. Uh, I was chairman for 12 years, 12 years over a period of 20. And um, Joe had contacted me about getting uh, WNYC and WPAT on the master antenna, uh, which we did within uh, by Saturday after the bombing on Tuesday. They were both on the air. One in the Alfred went into the FM master uh, with the filter that Tom showed previously, and uh, the other station, uh, WKCR, went to Columbia University with a very low power transmitter off of the dormitory building, and the other, the fourth FM station was WKTU, which was a clear channel station. And back in 1999, we had built the Fort Times Square backup facility. And um, I had designed and built that to be pre-year 2000 to be ready for a disaster that fortunately did not happen at that time. But we had all five of the Clear Channel New York stations up there. So KTU was the most fortunate of the radio stations by able to just turn off the the Trade Center transmitter and switch to Fort Times Square just literally seamlessly. Um, The TV stations, uh, as was mentioned mentioned earlier, xtv and uh, cbs had facilities at empire so they stayed on the air wnet and um uh wnbc trying to get uh, transmission line routing through the building to try to get antennas out in an the 81st floor, setback so they could be broadcasting albeit with a horrible signal and a horrible pattern coming off a building with a, a big void in the middle but they were on the air as well as helping steve out and um and subsequently uh for the last year and a quarter, I've been working for the Durst organization. I've been uh, very heavily involved in, in building up the what we hope to be the premier uh, backup site in the city. Uh, as it turns out, we're going to have a few primary broadcasters there. We presently have nine FM stations, uh, which I'll show you as we get further along. And we have, uh, so far, six TV stations going to be on board, uh, the first of them going on the air in high def next month. Uh, hopefully in time for the sweeps. Uh, I know the ABC folks would like to have that up and ready so. That's in the FCC. Right. Yep. Uh, back in March we brought up the first sections of the derrick to the roof as you can see as Tom said earlier in the snow um, trying to get everything up to uh, start to assemble things. The first derrick was a column derrick that was brought up in the elevator in total including the engine uh, and that was used to then pick up the bigger derrick which was then used to pick up all the tower and everything else that we're, we're building Previous to that, as I said before, Clear Channel was up with the five transmitters in a, in a common room that uh, uh, we built in the summer of 99. Uh, the closest transmitter is a KTU transmitter that did, in fact, operate from nine eleven oh one one to nine eleven oh two 2 before they, they built another facility uh, up at the Empire State Building. And an order from right to left are KTU, Z100, uh, Q104, uh, Elite FM, and Power 105, uh, which were up there and operating, and, you know, fortunately for, for KTU... It, it was there and ready to go and did, in fact, operate. Uh, subsequently, after 9-11, Spanish Broadcasting's WPAT and WSKQ and WNYC uh, moved in there. Uh, both projects, uh, DSIRF RF systems, uh, general contracted and, and built to uh, quite a nice job. And we've subsequently added WKCR, uh, Columbia University Station, to the mix. Um, pre-9-11, we had, this is one of two generators that were there. Uh, this is a 1,650 kilowatt generator. There's another 1,750-kilowatt generator up there uh, for a total of 3.5 megawatts of power at the top of the building for the broadcaster's use, and we are presently adding another 2.5 megawatts to bring the total up to 6 megs of backup power. What's the
1: runtime on those generators, John?
7: About five days without refueling. Uh, during the blackout, the radio stations all switched to, uh, to uh, four times square uh, and kept going during the entire blackout, as well as a low power digital TV of Univision's Channel 53. Uh, this is... Uh, Steve's room, as it was being built, and uh, not quite on the air. You still see tags on the transmitter. Uh, Spanish Broadcasting was also built. I did not make a picture of that one. Uh, During the construction, we had to take down the existing 132-foot tower to get ready to uh, put up the new 385-foot tower. And uh, there's one of the electricians putting in the transmission line outside the building. Uh, He's about 60 feet in the air on a man lift, uh, putting in the line to get out to that antenna. And uh, moments after that picture was taken, he sneezed. And that rig, as you can see, is a single monopole going up there, a telescoping pole. And that thing was swinging pretty violently. And uh, uh, Tony's now about three inches shorter. So he uh, had a bit of a scare that day. As we continued the, the construction, and this it's a little funny story, as Tom wrote in the notes that you went in our sights. Uh, we had to put up the pole, which is on the back of the sign there. And we attached the vertical sections and the power divider for the FM antenna to that pole. At that point in time, we got to about that angle, just under 45 degrees, and the iron workers take lunch. They do not work through lunch, and we stop construction. We come back from lunch to a police helicopter circling the building with a sniper rifle coming out the side as we were aimed directly in a nice mortar shot at the U.N. (laughs) So uh, it made for an interesting afternoon. As you see, a nice big gunmetal gray 32-foot tower with this beautiful new copper aiming at facing east at the UN. Uh, this is the temporary FM antenna which is still up, it's our construction antenna which will uh, hopefully be replaced by the FM next month as the tower gets finished up. It's a single bay, sharply um, lindenblad antenna. It has a gain of slightly less than a half, but it, uh, it has given the the, uh, the eight stations and then KCR when they came on the ninth station, uh, the ability to switch there is ongoing work in the Empire State Building continues with their uh, their reinforcement project. Uh, and it's uh, you know, just, just been available. We had to make sure we the broadcasters had something available. Uh, there's the antenna uh, with the SPN's receive dish on the right and Empire in the background. So that kind of shows a, a picture of the broadcasting facilities at the moment uh, in New York City. There's the first piece of the, the big derrick being brought over the side. Uh, the, when you've got a, a 700-foot building and you're trying to bring things up, that are bigger than the elevators, even though uh, the Empire State Building freight elevators can fit inside our elevators, there's still pieces that are bigger than what you can safely carry up inside an elevator. Uh, the easiest way to bring everything up was over the side. That's the derrick that did all the lifts from the street of all the, all the steel uh, to the roof and then subsequently to the gin pole and up onto the tower. During this time, Univision wanted to get channel 53 on the air. That's their digital for the Telefutura, channel 68 analog station. And we put a scalar antenna up on the west side, and they're broadcasting there with uh, the 3,500 watts ERP uh, coming off there, and they have been on since the May 1st sweeps. And uh, they were on during the blackout and didn't, didn't even hiccup. Unfortunately, there's not that many uh, HD viewers out there, but they, they were on through the whole thing. As I said before, getting things over the side... You do it with the derrick, that's about 20,000 pounds in that scale box up there, which looks like a 20 yard dumpster container to everybody. And it just brought it up and landed everything on the roof and built from there. Somebody in framing out the roof to plank it over for safety so we wouldn't ruin the whole roof, uh, used whatever was available. So in the design, and if we've been talking about RF safety at Empire and and everything else as we're going, Uh, Anywhere you can get roof access on Four Times Square, we've put this lighting panel, and obviously you see the signage on the door. Uh, When the light's green, everything on the building is safe outside. Uh, When it went to amber, that means that there were a couple of places on the roof you couldn't go if the FMI antenna, temporary antenna, was operating. And if it went to red, a larger area was uh, secured. Um, when When it went to red, I 90 dB alarm also went off all over any of the roof accesses, so you know that, hey, guys, if you're going out there, you can't be there. And on the cooling towers that are on the roof, there's actually lights there also that go from green to amber to red. Uh, if somebody's working on the cooling towers in the affected area, it needs to get off in a hurry uh, just to have a nice, nice safe environment. Uh, they are monitored with the output of the combiner system, so we know exactly what power is going in regardless of one station's on or all nine stations are on the air. Uh, the top of the building... Because it already had a design for a 200-foot tower, it only had to be reinforced in the top three floors. Uh, this is the top floor of the building right under the tower base, and you can see the size of that node that's being put in there, which is diagonal bracing. Uh, and we did have to interrupt uh, Spanish uh, NYC and Clear Channel's broadcasting to put these into the, into the rooms through their rooms so that we could reinforce the upper part of the building. Uh, this is a piece of the old tower coming down. Uh, it was a 132-footer, had uh, the FM antenna on it, and uh, that came down to get ready to put up the, the new tower. Uh, this came down in the beginning of May, and the new tower erection started in July. Uh, the old tower was put up in 98. It was operating from the summer of 99 to the summer of 03. This is the first tower base section. Uh, the piece to the right is where the Tom's Tower actually landed on it. That's a, a five-way junction that formed the base the western base of the tower—that's uh, about a 7,000-pound piece of steel. Uh, next to the lead iron worker Roy from the Del Rowe crew. This is one of the channels going through uh, the space, going up the building. The diagonal bracing through the broadcasters' area it went from the 50th through the 52nd floor. Uh, we did it as channels, so we wouldn't be swinging 3,000-pound beams through the broadcasting space, which meant we didn't have to move all the transmitters to relocate. To get this done, uh, the channels were then boxed in, which made effectively, they became a solid piece of steel. Uh, I think all in all, went pretty smoothly. Steve can attest or deny that, but I think all in all, it, we didn't do too much damage to everybody's room. Uh, this was the, the tower base first section, one face as it arrived in the yard, uh, the climbing ladder and, and the, the four legs. And here it is as it left the truck going up to the roof. Uh, that section was, uh, Tom, if I'm correct, about 12,000 pounds. And here it is as it reaches the roof going up. Um, we are in a fully occupied building. Uh, Condé Nest, as it's known, uh, is the bottom half of the building. And Skadden Arps, the law firm, is in the upper half. They both have cafeterias. And it, it provided endless amusement as these pieces were going up past the two cafeterias on a daily basis. Um, there's Tom setting the first piece to the tower base. So we had, we had to get him to do something. But once I got him there, I couldn't get rid of him. Well, again, what do you do with the transmission line to get up to the top that's 20 feet long and an elevator that's only 14 feet deep? You fly it over the top. Uh, that's about $150,000 worth of transmission line going up the side of the building. And here it is arriving at the top. Now, they landed it on the top, and they built it right off those rigs. Uh, Dielectric made the line in such a way that each each level was one level of the tower in an ascending order, so they took a level off, ran those up, put the next pieces up, and just kept building. Uh, this is the upper UHF inner piece uh, that ERI made. Uh, Dielectric then added the antennas, panels to it, and the radomes uh, stuffed it, and this, when this came to the building, it was a, a piece of about uh, 22,000 pounds when it went up to the top, fully assembled. This is the first transition going up. This is a 12-foot to 8-foot transition. Uh, Again, these pieces as they went up were in the range of 10 tons to 12 tons a piece. Uh, Doing this in midtown Manhattan during the summer in an occupied building and trying to be safe about it was an interesting project to to try to get this tower up fairly quickly and have a backup site for the broadcasters. Uh, We started erecting steel in July and it was topped off last week. Uh, This is the First eight-foot section going up above that that taper, and we just kept going up and up. As the tower got to a certain point, we started to stuff the coax in uh, so that we could be right behind the iron going up. We could be getting the getting the transmission line up so that we could you know keep the job going and, and keep it moving along. Uh, here's a piece being handed off to the gin pole. Uh, I believe Tom shot this from the top uh, as the piece was coming up. And here's a piece being swung in a gin pole. As he said, these were really manhandles around. There's no electric on the top of that gin pole. These guys were pushing with their legs to swing these pieces around in place. Columbia University, WKCR, went on the air. Uh, Still construction going on around them. Uh, But they are on uh, from Four Times Square with a backup now at Columbia University. This is a picture of Off Joe's camera, Joe provided the Durst organization with a camera via EarthCAM to um, get us construction pictures as we were going on. And this is the uh, top of the VHF with the transition piece to go to the bottom of the UHF. And this is a shot off the camera. Uh, We could archive what was going on during the entire construction. This is the lower UHF going up on top of the V. You can see the line stuffed in the bottom of it. And one of the ironwork is hanging from a pair of lanyards there and swinging as it's going up. Uh, That's uh, an eight-bay, eight-around antenna. So 64 antenna panels under those radomes. And uh, that provides the omnidirectional lower lower UHF antenna. And the one that's going up there on the gin pole now is a directional upper one. Uh, they then swung that around and added it. At that point, we were about 300 feet off the roof. We topped it off last Thursday with the Andrew Trasar uh, to a height of 385 feet above the roof. Uh, when the tracer was added, it made the tower 35 feet higher than the tower that was at the Trade Center, which is a 350-foot structure. Uh, the tower at Empire is 204 feet, including the beacon off the top of the building. So to give you an idea of the tower sizes, not building heights, but actual tower sizes. So you're looking at a 38-story building on top of the building that had been added to a total, Tom, 245 tons. Is that the correct number? Of additional weight to the top of the building. And that's where we are. Thank you very much.
0: has one more thing he'd like to run uh, for us and then we're going to open up uh, for questions and answers they can ask questions while we we do this Uh, he said we can ask questions while we're gone so are there any uh, questions
5: these are just some pictures that roll through on time that I put together for the NEP while you ask questions you
1: might like to see them are there any questions Dave, I'm going to throw out a question to the panel because I'm, I'm interested, in, and you guys are much more closer to this, much closer to this than I am. Um, let's talk a little bit about the philosophy, engineering philosophy after 9/11. Um, at, and, and Tom, certainly you're plugged in in terms of transmission system orders and whatnot. Have you been seeing more inquiries from stations in various market sizes, not just major markets like New York, but even small operators, who are now very concerned about the vulnerability of their plants?
5: You know, it, it's interesting. In the last year and a half or so, I think uh, four or five towers have come down. Um, one came down in in uh, Alabama about a month ago, killed the crew on a gin pole. Um, another one came down in in Omaha uh, within a couple of months, where uh, Dudus's crew was. Uh, had tents on using a molly that came undone um, I mean it just it, even with all these towers coming down we still find people in in rural areas that will not have a redundant tower so I guess the answer would be that we're not really seeing people all around the country going to uh, going to disaster planning for their sites but, you know, if you just look at New York City, um, it's, it's really staggering when you think that, that uh, 76% of the viewers had their TV. It didn't matter. And it makes you wonder why we need towers. I mean, I love towers. Don't get me wrong.
8: <laughs>
2: you make I think the bigger impact was from the Blackout, where uh, they lost radio. I mean, it's hard to justify having TV on the air when you don't have any electricity to watch the TV, but it's pretty difficult not to have radio on the air. So we're having a lot more inquiries post the blackout than we did post 9/11.
1: And, and John, I want to bring you in on this because you were part of the Clear Channel team when, when Four Times Square was, was coming around, and, and you did this by design. Uh, let me talk a little bit, and I'm going to toss it out to the audience as well. I want to ask just one question about um, studio redundancy. You know, we, we focused mostly on transmission systems. As I mentioned during my introduction, um, Clear Channel had thought
7: through the transmission part pretty well, but there were some issues that emerged during the blackout in terms of power at the studio sites. Yeah. The, Uh, Several of the stations had had UPSs in place, and the UPSs lasted until the batteries failed. Um, WAXQ, where I was based, actually had UPS on both the primary and the backup air studios, and that lasted for a period of time. They they actually lasted longer than the Verizon batteries on the T1s. Um, The common carrier cause, I believe, uh, with the FCC is they have to provide battery backup for four hours. Um, I know that over at, at AXQ, because I... We're having to be talking to them. The, the batteries in that building lasted about six. The batteries at four times squared down in our, our vault lasted 20, which was, which was wonderful. And we have subsequently put that point of entry room on our generator. So now that will then switch over automatically and we'll have power there. Um, we're getting a lot of spread spectrum requests now as opposed to having landlines. So the T1s are there from Verizon, but they're being backed up. Steve's presently putting one in. Um, I think that's the way people are going to be going. Clear Channel is going to be putting one in now so they can back up everything. They're looking at an emergency studio complex uh, right now for all five New York City stations off site from Manhattan so that it's on a separate power grid. It's, on a separate, it's in a separate state uh, with spread spectrum to feed both the Empire State Building and Times Square. Um, I'm starting to see a lot more people conscious of the studios as opposed to just the the transmitter facilities. But also you've got the issue of the fact that the common carriers are only required by law to have X amount of backup. And they've got to get around that as well. There's got to be a separate way to do it. Steve showed that he's got a T1 going from here to here and he's got microwave going here to here. And he's giving himself pass the crisscross to be able to make that redundancy. So, if you lose a loop this way, you've got a loop that way. And, and this is something that really, heretofore really hasn't even been thought of. Uh, a few people have had it, but um, the, the primary thing, very, very few. In, in the major markets where you're talking about big revenues, big losses, um, it's starting to happen. And as Joe said, it wasn't from the, either bombing, it was from the blackout right. that's really caused it. Um, Fort Times Square had the emergency generator, stayed on the air. Um, all eight of my FMs and my one TV that was on at the time stayed on, didn't even hiccup. Um, the studios were dark. Uh, WXQ, when they realized that they lost the studio, uh, one of the other stations, actually the jock said, I'm getting out of here, paused the audio system and left the building. Had they not paused it, it would have stayed on until the power actually failed. Um, but they panicked and left. AXQ brought their jocks up to Four Times Square, and they brought up, Mark Coppola came up like Santa Claus with a bag of CDs over his shoulder, and they did their show from up there as if nothing happened. Um, They switched to Z100, which had an active newsroom over in New Jersey. They put news on the air on all five stations for a while. Then they went back to regular program everywhere they could. in their case, having a, a profit audio system and everything tied together, they could put all the formats on from one central location, and now they're doing that with an off-site disaster recovery area as well. And I'm seeing that from other people. I'm sure Joe, in his dealings as a, as a supplier and a builder, is seeing that now as well. And, and Herb's been, been doing that for quite a while as well.
0: We've had an
2: audience inquiry. Ed, uh, you had a question?
0: Well
7: leave I was going to ask about the blackout and then
0: you crazy
2: without my question. Well I think in, in in all fairness that it's difficult for people to comprehend the magnitude of a disaster until the disaster hits. It's very, very difficult to do that. We found that, John and I in over, and over and over the first World Trade yeah. Center bombing. Uh just were totally ignored. I mean, it was, a, it was an epiphany for me in a business sense to understand risk management versus bottom line versus the mentality of the business uh, community. Uh, they just didn't want to hear about it. It wasn't going to happen again. Why should we spend this money on something that the chances of it happening are far and few between? And I think that's probably what you're running into in smaller markets, plus the isolation from New York. It happened in New York. It it didn't happen in, you know, uh, Omaha, Nebraska or something.
1: And what's really interesting is that in the smaller
2: markets where you might have only one or two
1: or three radio stations or less than a half dozen radio and no TV and no real substantive local cable to speak of, um, you really are, and the public really depends on you. You've got to be there. And, and for small market owners to not think that
2: they have to be concerned about the vulnerabilities of their systems is really very short-sighted. But there are budget concerns. It really does come down to money. It, uh, you have to look at what is it going to cost you. I'm off the air. Uh, nobody expected 9-11. Uh, no one really expected the magnitude of the blackout. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone knew that the power grid distribution was a problem, but they didn't expect the magnitude.
3: Well, I have now been in the New York market uh, for, let's see, 36 years, and I have seen blackouts. I've seen other disasters, major news stories, and and so on and so forth. And I've always felt that at any facility I'd be working at, I wanted to make sure that we had some backups because – Knowing Murphy's Law as it is, something is going to happen. You don't know when, but it will happen. Uh, and when I was, uh, most recently, when I was at WQXR, uh, after the 93 incident at the Trade Center, even though WQXR was at Empire State Building, there was that feeling, well, it could happen there, it could happen anywhere. And that we wanted to have an off-site facility, or at least I wanted to have it. But the sell was so difficult, uh, was the first question, well, how much time were you off the past year because of uh, power failures or, you know, I could say 25 minutes? How, much, how many spots were lost in that time? And the sales manager says, well, we did, we did make goods. It was not a problem. And that's the kind of thing that you deal with in trying to sell something is like it's bottom line oriented. How, what is the return on the investment, the ROI? And you can't put numbers on that. It's, you know, it's, it's your ace in the hole, but no one wants that. And fortunately, I was persistent and was able to make a deal to get WQXR, a backup facility, full power, in West Orange, New Jersey. Although it's not the most ideal location, I would probably much rather had uh, the cost uh, have the location at four Times square. but this was done immediately before four Times Square deal was announced and something is always better than nothing and uh, it, the site did work and did keep WqxR on during the the full blackout and um, I also the backup generator at the studio. That actually ran out of fuel about half an hour before the power came back, but fortunately the UPS batteries were fully charged and ran through and probably would have died like five minutes after the power was restored. So timing was everything. We did learn that um, as of the
2: blackout, we got into a new branch of our business, that's diesel fuel delivery, uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you get 275 gallons of fuel to the top of the Empire State Building? One gallon at a time. Uh, we actually maintain 55-gallon drums in our warehouse just to move fuel into tall buildings because you can't get rid of the drums. Do you stop via...
0: to walk them up
2: the stairs? No, we're we able to get them up in the elevator. Mm-hmm. The important thing, though, as I was wanted to bring up, based on what Herb said about West Orange... In the last, since 9-11, we at DSI, and I think John's picked up the term, a couple other people have, we have now categorized sites as main sites, alternate sites, and doomsday sites. WQXR site, West Orange, is a doomsday site. It does not have the coverage and the capability that an alternate site such as 4 Times Square has. That, I find, gets people's attention, because they can relate to the term doomsday, you know, what do you mean it's a doomsday site? And By the time you get done explaining it, then a manager is like, hmm, okay, I made an active decision to put a doomsday site in rather than a more expensive alternate site.
6: Do you have a question?
8: Yes. Uh, I, uh, I was interested to hear that there seems to be such a low competitive nature among the stations here. I'm from the Boston area. I used to work for WGBH, the PBS outlet in Boston. And if you know the area, the Big 3 plus uh, WB have towers within spinning distance of each other out of 128. And as far as I know, all of them have on-site generators in case the juice goes down. Even WGBH had on-site. Now, it's not remote site, but at least if the juice goes down and it does go down up there, there is a way to get back on the air. Um, I'm wondering whether or not, in you dealing through these stations, what the cost is of putting in a generator that will, in fact, keep them on the air. Maybe not every light in the building, but we we'll keep them on the air. I can't believe that's not cost-effective for them.
2: Well, I know for a fact that the MTVA, the TV group, is investigating that. Uh, we are going into conversations with Infinity and a couple other broadcasters about generators for their facilities. But uh, there are some problems with generators. In New York, most generators you are limited, I think, what is it, 500 hours a year now mm-hmm. from the EPA because of uh, diesel emission. Uh, you can go to cogen and uh, get the city actually or the state to pay you to run your generator so we're looking into some of that for some of the broadcasters um,
1: there's also another uh, limitation now Joe because one, one of the th- reasons that seven world trade collapsed was because the diesel fuel farm caught fire it was on right. the roof of the building since world trade uh, the FDNY if I'm not mistaken guys is no longer issuing permits for rooftop diesel fuel storage, which means the only generator you can reasonably install and get permitted in New York City proper, or at least in Manhattan, is a natural gas generator. Those are outrageously expensive. Uh, I'm now specking out our our doomsday site, and uh, to price a a primary and a backup generator, uh, and these are diesel generators, would have cost us installed, no, I'm sorry, not installed, just the purchase, $400,000. Just for the two generators. Um, and that's, and, and you, you add in the, the labor, and it's you know it's outrageous. You're
2: talking well over a half million dollars uh, and to put in emergency power. And the other problem is that in it's unique to New York versus Boston, for example. I won't say it's easy because it involves money and planning, but it's a lot simpler to install that size generator at a tower site outside of the city right. versus exactly. on the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, natural gas while the generators are more expensive, we don't have gas. I mean, the, there is a main running up through the Empire State Building, but it's sized. Right. You know, It's, it, tapped, it, out. it's right. tapped out. There's only so much volume in the pipe, the same as there's only so much current cap- capacity in the cable. And I think trying to get an EPA permit to put a bigger gas main in may be a little bit difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah. okay, you get an EPA and also uh, city permits at that right. point, because you're in the heart of Manhattan. It's, it's dang- that's dangerous work.
2: <laughs> One of the things you have to look at also... When you're planning this is if you have a high tower, which we've proven now in 88 when there was a fire at the Empire State Building, 93 with the first bombing, 9-11 with the second bombing, and the blackout, is that if you're at 1,000 feet plus, if you're over the average terrain obstructions, you don't need that much power in an emergency. Mm-hmm. I mean, Steve ran for a year almost, no, about six months right. with a kilowatt a thousand watts and I have to tell you yeah there were spots that I used to drive around in Jersey because I listened to his station a lot uh, that you'd have problems but I never lost the station Mm -hmm. I would have less than desirable coverage I may lose separation there were problems but I never lost the station if you look at Putting in generation and maybe switching and throttling back your rigs, which you can do with your solid-state transmitters now, to 1,000 watts or 2,000 watts versus 10,000 watts. You can stay on the air for a long time with batteries.
5: (laughs) You know, there's another thing that's really unique about this area. I think New York City is just about the only city in the United States that doesn't have any towers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even Chicago which has two dominant broadcast sites with the Hancock building and the Sears building, still has a lot of towers right. surrounding it. In Boston, for example, you've got the Sconic site. Uh, you've got uh, the new t- the tall tower out in Lowell that uh, Greater Media's got. You've got all these towers. Philadelphia's the same way? Philadelphia's the same way. Right. It's got a tower right. farm. Yeah. Yeah. farm. But in New York City, you've got buildings. I mean, there's no towers. And, and uh, right after 9-11, uh, there was a lot of talk about this tower that was going to go on on governor 's Island, and it could be done governor 's Island was basically a garbage dump it 's where they dumped the, the pilings from the subway. from the subway, so you know you 've got to go down one hundred and something feet for a foundation, but it 's very doable, but from a political standpoint, the city didn 't want to see a tower. There was talk about putting a tower up in Brooklyn. That would be such a logical thing. And New York is like a mountain valley, too. I mean, if radio waves propagate real nicely up the huts, up through the, 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 the city. If you try to go over to Jersey, you'll get terrible coverage because of the multipath, in my opinion. If you try to go and use the Alpine Tower, your coverage is minimal. Um, so you almost have to have buildings. And uh, on the Empire State Building, pre-911, there was only, to my knowledge, one UPS diesel power supply that had sort of been grandfathered It was right. up there. There was, it was the North Q- there was a few of them. Yeah, it. But I talked to Alex Smirnoff about that, and he said the building didn't want any more. That's right. They just, mm-hmm. So, That's right. you know, to answer that question, here you've got this logical place to have them, but they didn't want them. Now, in John's case, the building supplies... UPS power. They don't let their tenants right. put UPS in.
2: Yeah, but the difference there is also is that John's building was built within the last what, ten years? Right, yeah, the last five years. At Empire State Building, there is no physical room to bring risers up from the street. Right. So if you wanted to put a generator on the air conditioning dunnage on top of the loading dock, it could be done. But the cost to bring the risers up is astronomical.
5: Yeah, but the Empire State Building's just invested Millions in bringing up risers. Right. Mm-hmm. The logical place for UPS would
1: be for the whole building in the basement. In the basement. Yeah, all of you have raised a very important issue also about geographical diversity. And in an area market that is as frequency congested as as New York City, um, ain't a whole big bunch of room to move. Yeah. Uh, even if you work. wanted to build towers, um, uh, you know, Mark uh, Mark's uh, plant up at Alpine is DA because he's short spaced to Albany, a uh, co-channelled station in Albany on the same frequency. Um, I mentioned the 3.2 mile window that the TVs had because of, of interference to, to uh, Albany and. Um, Uh, Boston and uh, Philadelphia. Uh, So there really is no physical place to move. And yet geographic diversity in a disaster planning uh, situation is is
7: critical. You don't want everything clustered in the same place. Yeah, and Fort Times Square being eight blocks away from Empire kind of moves it just outside that immediate, I don't want to use the word impact zone, but um, that's really what it is. And it's close enough to the 3.2 mile circle away from the Trade Center that a lot of those problems don't exist, and we've, the, right. the computer-generated coverage maps right now that we're showing uh, are showing 95 to 98 percent of the signal from the Trade Center can, can be delivered off a 4 Times square. Um, I'd say that's a pretty good number for a site that's, number one, not as high by several hundred feet, um, but the, the, the way the antennas were made and all that, we're hitting those, those contours uh, almost exactly. The only area that... Looks like it's going to be a little bit of of the loss, and that that 2 to 5 percent we're talking about is down towards Philly, and that's an area where there's an overlap anyway, so you don't want to be there because there's an overlap. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been proven yet on a new tower. Uh, The FMs that were up there on the old tower, which was, as I said, 132 feet to the top, the center radiation was 120 feet. The FMs themselves are going up 95 feet from where they were. The TVs, with the exception of channel 245, which will be below, are all even above that. So, Time will tell. We have to turn it on and see what it looks like. But I mean, if these are what it looks—you know—the coverage looks like. And hopefully, you know, that may suffice for not having to put a tower in a Jersey City or Hoboken or Bayonne or, or the Governor's Island, which have all been all been knocked down um, by political environmental issues or anything else. And also, those are going to be funded by the broadcasters. This was funded by the Durst Organization. No cost to the broadcasters. It'll be picked up in their leases. But it's there. Uh, to keep the broadcasters in the city and keep, keep everything there and, and make sure the New York City people uh, benefit by having the tower in New York City, um, um, not going to Jersey and have the tax dollars move across the river and that kind of stuff. There's environmental and economic issues involved with anything that's done, whether it being power generation, uh, UPS, or anything. Yes, David.
0: Uh, Tom and John, um, you, you touched a little on the DTV transition, uh, but you basically showed there's really no room to put new antennas up there for DTV as well. What's going on with that? Well, the, uh, there's no
5: room to add more antennas, but the two UHF antennas are broadband. So they're designed, it's just a big hole. You can put as much in there as you want.
7: But both of the UHF antennas are four times square. The lower one goes from channel 24 to channel 45, and the upper one go, transitions from channel 40. So there is a crossover there up to channel 60. Uh, so we can and we can handle all the DTVs as well as all the analogs in the market. Our, our DTV is going to be there.
0: And um, I correct uh, that Bloomberg uh, is still against any construction of new towers besides Freedom Tower right now. Uh,
7: that's what it seems like. What we're hearing, except for
5: except for the new Freedom, Freedom Tower,
0: 1776.
2: No, 2000 today. They were oh, supposed really? today. They want to go to 2000 with it, make it the tallest tower. Cool.
0: They changed the height from 1776?
2: As of today, it was in, I think it was the Post that said I it wasn't, wasn't the height, well, it's the date, right?
8: We <laughs> <laughs> uh, have a follow-up question. Yes, I take it uh, you're talking about what might go on top of the World Trade site. Yes, sir. Right. Uh, so that's already cut off at the knees, I take it from what i just just heard you say. There's no. going to be a limitation to what's going to be up there, no, whatever the design Today is. I
2: read in the paper, I was getting my shoes shine that they're going up to 2,000 feet with that tower, with the Freedom Tower, with the building with the broadcast antenna on top. That, that, okay, get to that point. How, how much use is it going to be? How many people will that, be up,
8: that up tower, there?
5: That tower will be designed as a TV facility. I don't believe there's, there's an FM facility planned for it. There that ought to be. Not. There should it's be, but time. there
8: never has been. Is probably there a great deal pushed in from the broadcasters, all the local broadcasters, to be on some part of that tower, whether well, it's well, a well, secondary well, well, or whatever?
1: I think all the TVs are going to be or, there. All the TVs the are the paying for that the tower. The Metropolitan Television Association, which is the c- consortium of all the metro broadcasters, TV broadcasters, okay. uh, agreed in principle to go back to Freedom
2: Tower.
7: Still, still several years away, though. Um, yeah, Many years away, too. probably.
2: One of the things we enjoy in New York is that almost every broadcaster is in one of three groups of management. We have the MTVA, which is all the TV stations. You have the Master FM, which is 16 of the 20 FM stations. And then the independent FMs operating on their own mini-Master concept. So you're almost forced to work together. Not forced, but elect to work together. So there is some competition, but at the same time there's a lot of camaraderie. So uh, if the TV's want to move to Freedom Tower, then the MTVA will, you know, is their voice for that. And uh, we haven't talked to, to Silverstein about moving the FMs to that building yet.
1: One of the uh, points that was made uh, was about ROI. And the problem with trying to apply ROI analysis to disaster planning is that when you're doing disaster planning, it's not, you're not looking for a return on investment. You're buying an insurance policy. Right. Right. The average television license in New York City is worth a billion dollars on the street. That's before the negotiations start. It's a billion dollar sticker price. And um, if a disaster plan costs you a million dollars, let's say, soup to nuts for studio and transmitter, um, that's, what, a tenth of one percent of the value of the property. Now, my car insurance, that's 20 percent of the value of my car. Is what it costs me every year to insure my car. And you can, ha- you can have this kind of protection, even at a million dollars, for a tenth of one percent of the value of the asset you're protecting. Station owners really have to think in those terms. You're not, and, and CEs too, you're not, you can't apply investment analysis to this. This is protecting goodwill because the thing that you're really protecting is your reliability reputation among your audience. That when they turn on that thing, the light lights that's what they want to know. They don't care about what you went through to keep your signal on the air. They know nothing about engineering. They don't care. They know they're scared. They know they need information, and they want to go to the place that they go to every day to get it. And if you're not there to give it to them, when the power comes back, they're there, gone.
7: Yeah. The, uh, the, let me give you a good example of that. The Queer Channel facility at Fort Times Square that was built in 99, Uh the annual rent on that space was covered by the 25 hours of the blackout that they were off mm-hmm. by the fact that they were not off in august they were on and that picked up the rent tab or half the build out tab of what the facility cost to build in one blackout was it worth doing you bet it was uh but most people don't think that way uh, just fortunately at the time when i was chancellor media actually when that was built had the forethought to spend the money and do it um The building was going up. WLTW at the time was looking for a home for the new studios. And I actually was trying to convince them to move LTW and AXQ into four times square, put the studios and the transmitter in that building, uh, only to find out that the building had been fully occupied other than an area on the top, and a tower was designed, and uh, we got pioneer status to build that facility up there. So, you know... It was done, and I'll tell you, that one 25-hour period well paid for itself. Uh, it paid for itself after the bombing, too, because KTU was on the air for a year from there uh, without, without skipping a beat in that, in that regard. Uh, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't think of the, the money you're spending when it's, as you said, a very, very small portion. It, yeah, the TV budget, it's a lot smaller portion of a budget than a radio budget, but still, I mean, one, one shot, and it's paid for. And your audience is there. They're not flipping the dial for somebody else.
0: Yes, you have a question. Hi, how would you rate the response of the equipment
2: uh, manufacturers in this disaster? Any particular heroics that you can speak of? They all just came through. I mean, uh, especially when you have a disaster that's a national disaster. Uh, Everybody came through. Uh, You didn't even... That wasn't even an issue. No, no. I think <laughs> and, you
4: just expected it and, and it was there. I think it's in the blood of yeah. broadcasters.
2: And, and I
7: wasn't even I- calling the manufacturers for equipment. They were calling the broadcasters saying, what do you need? Right. It, it really, it was both ways. Well, equipment, was, equipment was flying into yeah. assembly points to get into the city. Well, Which Further, the manufacturers were working together. I
5: mean, we worked with Andrew and Harris to provide that first shipment of stuff that went out. That week, uh, I was actually in Andrews plant the first day the planes flew, and then I was in New, New York a few days later. Uh, we also worked with Dielectric, and Dielectric uh, shipped to us the uh, second 7, 9, 13 antenna. It was in our warehouse for about eight months because it got delayed going in. And it, I mean, it's really amazing when you consider, you know, balls-to-the-wall competitors all of a sudden shipping their product to one of their competitors, that same competitor, and saying, Eric, can you get this up for me?
2: I think, again, one of the things that the manufacturers, I hate using the word enjoy, but I don't have a better term, and the broadcasters in this market, is this is the third major disaster that we have put up with. Um, And you get used to that. And when people call and say, you know, there's a disaster, we need help, they jump to it. They really do.
1: If you want to know why you should tell your boss you want to write off your palm pilot, (laughs) Uh, having night numbers, and this is what I advise the the stations for whom I'm doing this planning: get your vendor, your after-hours vendor numbers, get your get your cell phones, get email addresses, get everything, because you don't know which service is going to be working from where you are in order to contact the reps. And they may be trying to call you, most of them will be, certainly, if you have good relationships with them, uh, but they may not be able to reach you. So you, you need to have even a backup plan for planning for the backup plan. You know, you've got to be able to reach these people. In our case, uh, in terms of Harris, they were delightful. I mean, they rerouted a ch- a two channel seven transmitters, and TV transmitters take a long time to build because uh, they 're highly customized and um, and they would uh, I, I think they were headed for stations on the west coast and, and they were just the truck was turned around and sent immediately to New York and they landed in the driveway of our
0: engineering manager basically had a very rushed job and a fast chance to actually redesign the whole broadcast uh, transmission system of an entire city at once. Were you able to uh, incorporate any improvements or anything, or was it just a job of just getting getting it on and say, that's that? Or were you able to say, hey, it would be better if we did it
2: this way than the way it was done or something? I would, speaking for myself, we really didn't have anything to do with that it was more people like Steve and Mark and individual stations learning from their mistake not their mistakes from Improvement. the improvements to, right. to operating because again if you don't you, it's, it's easy to sit here and talk about what could happen he's like oh that could happen now, how many backups do you really need before the backups start needing backups because people will steal from them to make the main plant work um You have to learn from the experience and you build a better plan. Is New York going to be better for it? Yeah. It's going to be better. Will it be disaster-proof? Not until people have alternate sites at different geographical locations, whether they be doomsday or alternates, it's not going to be
4: fixed. Right. One of the derivatives of this was uh, alternate sites for some stations mm-hmm. um, uh, at, at NYC, remember it had you know, everything in one basket there yeah. um, and we, our priority was to get back on the air by any which way possible, i.e. alligator clips, mm-hmm. um, but of course you start thinking immediately you know, how to do it better, you put that into place and then you look a little, long, a little further long term to say all right, you know, how, can, uh, how can we implement a backup for this and that and uh, speaking for ourselves, we came out with a, you know with, with two good sites uh, with plenty of backup and failability. in that.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Hey, the Empire State Building, of course, as everyone knows, was built in, at the end of the Depression around 1929 and 30. And record time, the tower on the Empire State Building was fabricated and installed in the 50s for uh, television. It's a non-galvanized mm-hmm. tower that was mostly held together with rivets that have 20 ksi tension capacity that tower should have been demolished and removed uh we uh when the you know all this stuff that went into the empire stable to get these stations on the air is all was all thrown in i mean lines that were put in in 93 for the fm group were meticulously laid out and routes were planned and everything was done and Now, all these lines have been thrown in there. The building is trashed. And and typically what happens is when the dust settles, they're just going to leave that stuff there. It's not going to be cleaned up. Uh, The tower, we were hired by MTVA to come up with exactly those long-term plans. And our recommendation was take the tower down, put a new tower up, exactly what was done on, on the Durst building. But the Empire State Building... Wouldn't have it. That tower is—it's not galvanized. It's not maintained properly. It's not painted properly. It's not lit properly. Uh, the beacon—I don't think the beacon still flashes, does it? No. You know, I mean, go up and, no. The reason no. the, the, no. the, the oh, beacon—the reason the beacon burns out every six months is because it's on all the time. <laughs> and uh, every time you go to the Empire State Building management and you say. You know, for $250, you can buy a new flasher unit. Why don't you put it in? And they'll say, really? Quote it. So you quote it. And I don't know where the quotes go. <laughs> they, you know, the next time you come in, you say, well, did, aren't you going to fix the beacon? They say, well, you're going to send me that quote. I said, okay, I'll send you another quote. They just vaporize. I don't know where they go.
0: So, so Tom, you are you saying that that tower is uh, really in danger of collapsing itself? Or no.
5: Not anymore? not anymore. It's been it, It's been fixed. But... You know, it was built before the A standard. It was built before the RS222A standard came out. It was built under the TIA right. standard, which, if it was adhered to, the tower would have fallen over years ago. Fortunately, some engineer looked at that standard and said, "Jesus, tower never hold up." And so they, instead of doing it at 20 miles an hour, they did it at 50. So it sort of adhered to the C standard. But the problem is that you got this. Seacoast City with a salt air with this huge tower that's not galvanized and not properly maintained and not painted properly. So, you know, to answer your question, which was, uh, would there, were there recommendations to make it better? There were, but then none of them were taken.
1: Is it, is it, do you believe it's just, it's just a budget thing, that the building owners don't want to spend the money, or, or aren't they concerned about the potential liability? I'll
5: tell you exactly what it is. If you look at the revenue from the Empire State Building. They make more money per tourist than on the do. 86th floor than they do per watt that goes
2: into your broadcast community. <laughs> and that's what it's all about. Let me tell you something. In 1988, there was a fire in the transmission line chase at Empire State Building. All the FMs and the TVs, they were off the air. Uh, transmission lines burned up. The, uh, F, uh, the fire department pulled the primary power. The biggest concern was when can we get the observation deck open. That's right. I mean, I literally was on the phone with the Empire State Building. I was hired as the uh, coordinator to get it back on the air. And the question was, when can we open the observation deck? And the observation deck was opened at 9 o'clock, and the fire was put out about, I think, 8 or 8.
0: I remember rushing in there, and uh, for some reason, the firemen told me to come up with them. And the the people from the Empire State Building, all their comment was, just feel the door and make sure it's not hot before you go in. That that was it. The important thing is not,
2: I don't think it's what is happening today. I think by default and by insurance uh, reimbursement, Broadcasters, in New York at least, are forced to build an alternate site. So they have empire, and you can amortize a transmitter plan for 15 years. If Freedom Tower does get built, and it's 2008, they still have anywhere from five to seven years left on their amortization plan. The important thing is, what's going to happen to the next generation? Are they going to keep that plan? Is RF going to go away? Those are the important issues to me. Thank God it's not my career-relevant lifetime. So I don't really care what someone does in 2013. I expect to be on the beach.
1: By the time, by the time Freedom Tower gets built, WABC will have four transmitter sites. Freedom, right. Empire, four uh, Times Square, and we'll keep an Alpine. Because Alpines, uh, we just love Alpine. <laughs> it's, just a, it's, it's almost free, and it's a great site. Uh, As a backup, as a a true doomsday site, it's it's just fine.
0: I want to thank everybody for coming today. And I have to say, this was a phenomenal panel. And I'm glad that Howard and I uh, drove everybody crazy to come today. (laughs) And I want to remind everyone that there are other broadcast-related events here at the convention. Um, Saturday in this room at 12.30, we will have audio processing for broadcast, and we have basically who's who of audio processing for broadcast there, and on Sunday, we have digital audio broadcasting, and uh, that... That's the 12th year in a row we're having that forum, and it looks really good this year because we're going to be talking as well about IBOC and so forth, but we're also going to be talking about Radio Mundial and and, uh, also um, some digital television. So thank you very much to everybody.